This episode is brought to you by our sponsors and by listeners like you on Patreon. Bomba's vision is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombas, you are also giving to someone in need. Bombas has designed their socks, shirts, and underwear to be the clothes you can't wait to put on every day. The Webb family over here has used them, and we love them. They're comfy, fun-looking, and come in family packs, which is awesome. I've never seen that before. I use my Bombas socks when I go on runs, and they're extremely comfortable. Everything they make is soft, seamless, tagless, and has a cozy feel. And the Bombas t-shirts are made with thoughtful design features like invisible seams, soft fabrics, and perfect waist so they hang just right. And did you know that socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested clothing items at homeless shelters? That's why Bombas donates one for every item you buy. So far, Bombas customers like you have helped donate over 50 million items of essential clothing. Go to bombas.com slash purple rocket and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash purple rocket for 20% off. Bombas.com slash purple rocket. Parents, school's out, summer's here, and the kids are back at home with a lot of free time. Go wild with wonder this summer without school. Enroll in a fun, flexible learning experience with over 140,000 online classes and camps for every kid with any interest. Look, as a fellow parent, I get the pressure of finding something engaging and useful for our kids to do over the summer break. OutSchool can help keep them engaged and their minds stimulating their imaginations firing. They offer every kind of class you can imagine, from entrepreneurship to freestyle dancing to art, even magic lessons. There's something for kids of all ages, grades, and interests. We homeschool in the web house, and we plan to get Aurora and Cohen signed up with some out-school activities to keep them engaged in a fun way and help them explore their talents and maybe discover some new ones. Out-school will have your kids loving to learn and having fun doing it. Head over to outschool.com slash purple rocket and use code purple rocket to learn all about out-school summer programs and save $15 on your child's first class. That's O-U-T-S-C-H-O-O-L dot com slash purple rocket to save $15 on your child's first class. Outschool.com slash purple rocket code purple rocket. And don't forget, parents, supporting our sponsors is a great way to support this podcast. And now, back to our show. The Purple Rocket Podcast presents Space Train. Previously on Space Train, Doug and the cadets explored the space train and learned about gravity by playing a game of basketball in the train rec room. After their game, the crew discovered Doug's purple soda bottle rocket floating in space. In it was a message for them that read, It has come to our attention that you have embarked on a new generation of crusades. Your trek has come at an opportune moment for us as we are in dire need of your assistance. At the rate of 20,000 gallons a minute, our water is drying up. Without it, our people and all life on this planet will become extinct. 
We beg of you, space train cadets. We have nowhere else to turn. With the utmost respect, Admiral Rizzo Rames of the Republic of Mars. And now for Episode 3, Mars and the Well of Being. Somewhere in the deep, dark silence of space, there floated a cloud of dust. Dallas stared at it through the space train's porthole window with a numb expression. It shimmered like glitter as it bounced off the sides of the space train and reflected the sun's far-stretching rays. Dallas's face pressed even harder against the window, squashing it and making it look like he had a pig nose and enormous cheeks. What am I doing here? He said to himself. Watching the dust bounce off the window brought back images of the seed he'd throw in the fields and gardens back at the ranch. It bounced again and he imagined it as the dust kicked up from his trotting horse. Even the swirls reminded him of the curling waves he'd catch on El Capitan Beach. <sighs> he sighed. It was official. He missed home badly. This was their second outing on the space train, and the initial awe of being in outer space was starting to wear off. He missed the tractors, the smell of citrus in the breeze, the lazy afternoons on a surfboard after a day's work. There, on the farm, on the beach in Santa Barbara, he was free. Here, he was trapped in a tin can, and to make matters worse, it felt as though he were the only one feeling homesick. As if to prove his point, the sounds of muffled laughter echoed from the Cosmic Café. Down the hall, sitting at one of the peanut-shaped tables in the cafeteria was the rest of the crew. Lydia had just taken a bite of her fizzy cream-filled donut and it had shot cream all over Doug's shirt. Whoops, sorry about that, she said, handing him a napkin. I didn't think it'd be so packed. She took another bite of the donut that had been fried five times and glazed to look like the planet Earth an Earth Donut, as it was called by the Cosmic Cafe's robot chefs. Doug looked at the cream on his shirt and laughed. Well, I guess I don't have to go back for dessert. Now this stain can have a friend. He had just finished wiping the ketchup off his shirt next to the new cream blob. Look at this. There's got to be a way to get those cooks to put less condiments on here. In front of him was the train dog, a foot-long hot dog in the shape of the space train. It would have been delicious had the robot arms at the grill not blasted it with 30 pounds of ketchup. Lydia took another bite. Goro says some of the chefs could use some maintenance and now you get around to it. And that was last trip, she said. They looked back at the robot arms that were spraying gobs of mustard on an ice cream sundae. What's that, Leo? Doug asked, nodding to the purple smoothie in his hands. Leo's curly blonde hair bounced as he shrugged. I think that's the moonberry smoothie, answered Lydia, filling in as usual for Leo's silence. I almost got one myself until the robot told me it had kale in it. Leo looked repulsed by this revelation and he quickly pushed the drink aside. They sneak that stuff into every smoothie nowadays, she said with a mouthful of fizzy cream donut. Why can't they just stick to fruit instead of trying to trick us into being healthy? The thought of being tricked into eating healthy made Doug think of his mom and dad. They weren't health nuts by any stretch of the imagination, but it was normal for them to try to sneak some spinach or greens into foods where they didn't belong. Have you guys ran into any trouble with your parents? Doug asked. I mean, you know, about you sneaking out so early and being gone for a good chunk of the day? Leo simply shook his head and Lydia agreed. Huh? -uh. Come to think of it, they haven't mentioned it once. It's like every time I get home, it's right in the nick of time before it looks too suspicious. 
In fact, after our last trip, the millisecond I laid back in bed, my mom came in to wake me up for school. I about had a heart attack. Me too, said Doug. I guess Goro's just that good. He is a robot, so you know, calculating the perfect time of arrival isn't impossible, right? Lydia took her last bite. Makes sense to me. Doug turned to Leo and realized he hadn't said a word the entire trip, or the entire time he'd known him for that matter. There didn't seem to be a perfect way of asking the question, so we just went for it. Uh, Leo? Leo looked up at him with raised eyebrows. Can you speak? There was a long pause as Leo looked between Doug and Lydia, both of whom waited anxiously for a response. Leo smiled at them and nodded before going back to his smoothie. Doug raised an eyebrow. Okay. Speaking of quiet, said Lydia, saving him from the awkwardness, have you guys seen Dallas? I feel like any time he's not in the room, I can hear the AC running. Doug shook his head. I don't know. He might be in the lounge. As soon as we walked in here, he was gone. Just zoom, took off. Lydia frowned. I hope that Sir Farmer's feeling okay. Lunch just isn't as fun without him. Sir Farmer, that's pretty good. Doug said, trying not to take offense at Lydia's comment. Leo tapped Lydia's shoulder and pointed to the float spray floating behind them. She turned and saw the levitating trail of edible spray heading out of the cafe and down the hall. Moments later, they were following it, past the rooms and into the solar cinema. Inside was an immaculate theater room with stadium seating, red and orange accent lights, and a massive wraparound projector screen. There, sitting among the empty seats, was Dallas, watching the waves crash on the shores of Santa Barbara. Not seeing the other kids enter, he pulled out his little can of float spray and gave it a couple good squirts. A root beer-flavored mist floated up in front of his face and he quickly slurped it up out of the air. Dallas's beachy nirvana was rudely interrupted as the waves on screen disappeared and Goro's fat, mustached robot face filled the room. Hello, Dallas, cadets. Confused, Dallas turned and saw the other kids standing behind him. He immediately shriveled into his chair and tried to smother his embarrassment in his straw hat. Everyone to the planetarium, announced Goro. And no more eating in the cinema. It leaves goopity guck on the floors and I hate it when my boots make that sticky noise when I sit down. All right, then, see to it. As ordered, the kids piled out of the cinema and went to the planetarium. Goro was waiting for them at the pulpit in the middle of the reclined chairs. One by one, the kids sat back and looked up at the dome screen. The room filled with red light as an image of Mars shone on the screen. A little bit about our destination. Mars, also known as the Red Planet, for obvious reasons... It is the fourth planet from the sun and named after the mythological Roman god of war. Last week, we discussed gravity and its effect on you. Here on Mars, the gravity is 37% of that of Earth's, which means you can jump three times higher there. The planet's surface is covered in a fine dust, and beneath that it's mostly volcanic basalt rock. Our mission today takes us here, to the city of Olympus, set at the foot of the greatest mountain in our entire solar system, Olympus Mons. It's a very flat mountain with a gradual slope, but nevertheless, this mammoth is three times higher than Mount Everest. The screen zoomed in to show a distant aerial image of the Mars capital, nestled at the base of the mountain. It is here that Admiral Rizzo Rames of the Republic of Mars awaits our arrival. That's the guy who somehow got a hold of my rocket and sent us a message? 
asked Doug. It would appear so. And how exactly did he do that? asked Lydia. To think he somehow saw it floating around in space, grabbed it, and then stuck a message in it for us and pushed it in front of us seems a little bit ridiculous. Good point, Lydia, but it is not for me to say. Dallas? Dallas sat up in his seat. He'd been pretending his pen was a spaceship and was using the Mars projection as a background to his own little space playtime. What? For the love of space, boy, pay attention. Dallas rolled his eyes and went right back to zoning out. Goro continued his instructions nonetheless. Leo has been kind enough to prepare your translators, which you will all need. Unless one of you is fluent in Martian, of course. Anyone? No? Everyone here is an entitled little English speaker with no other language experience? Thought so. Okay, Leo, go ahead and hand them out. Leo frantically finished the final updates on the translators, unplugged them from his computer, and handed them out. Goro pointed to the side of his chubby robot head. Now, place the translator behind your ear, and it should attach itself. Don't be alarmed by the sudden pinch. Doug held up the clear-looking lima bean and pressed it behind his ear. Ouch! The hearing aid bit into his skin like a spider. Goro's digital screen mouth smiled. Like I said, just a pinch. He clicked a button on the podium and the screen showed a massive round metal tank the size of a skyscraper, full of water. This is the Well of Bing. For thousands of years it has been the Martian's source of water. And apparently, according to Admiral Rizzo, something is wrong with it and all life on Mars is in grave danger. Yada yada yada. Our mission is to investigate the cause of water loss and attempt to restore it. He clicked quickly through the slides that looked important but apparently weren't by his standards. The clicking stopped when he reached an image of a small white box. Now for your suits. Beneath your chairs you will find a suit box. Each has been fitted specifically to your body, so no swapping. And each is absolutely necessary to walk the Martian surface. The air is not breathable, and if one of Mars's frequent dust storms rolls in during our time there, we will need its protective attributes. The kids pulled the lunchbox-sized squares from under their seats. Doug noticed the image of Olympus was getting closer and closer on the screen, and pretty soon it was right above the planet's dusty surface. Goro held up a suit box. When I instruct you to do so, you will simply press the box against your chest and a suit will dispense. Do not, and I repeat, do not, he looked at Dallas and bounced his shiny eyebrows, sit on your suit box, unless you want your backside to be sucked into a helmet and your face smothered in space pants. Are we clear? Good. Has everyone understood the words coming out of my mouth? Doug and Lydia exchanged a look. Why wouldn't we have? Lydia asked. Because, my dear, this last portion of the presentation I have given in Arabic to test your translators. Speechless, the kids reached behind their ears and touched the amazing devices. I'll take that as a creeped out yes. Right. Now, if you can please file out in an orderly fashion, we will exit the train. Exit? Exit where? said Dallas, finally paying attention and secretly hoping they'd landed back on Earth. Goro pointed up to the projection of Olympus above, the screen now level with the surface. We're here. Minutes later, the four cadets were standing anxiously in front of the exit doors, each holding tightly, but not too tightly, their suit boxes. Goro stood next to them. Good luck, cadets. I have faith in you. Mainly because I haven't really seen you screw up yet, so please don't. Take a deep breath and boxes to your hearts. 
After a second of hesitation, Doug pressed the box up against his chest. Instantly, a suit shot out in all directions and engulfed him. Thick tubes wrapped themselves around his arms and legs. A blanket-like jacket tightened around his torso and flipped a glass helmet over his head. Boots grew out of the leg tubes until they slithered over his toes, lifting him off the ground and connecting under his feet. That was awesome, he said, looking over the incredible white suit. The others, too, were marveling at the automated spacesuits that just eaten them. Even Dallas had taken a moment to set aside his bad attitude to appreciate the suit's fit and workmanship. Whoa, bro, whoa, was all he could say. Goro faced them. I'll be staying behind to man the train, but don't worry, I'll be communicating with you through your headsets. If you need anything, and I mean anything, don't bother asking. He pressed a button on the wall and the doors opened. Outside, the sounds of busy Olympus filled their helmet speaker system. The dirt roads buzzed with the hums of hovering vehicles and chattering pedestrians. Domed huts made of clay and dirt filled the landscape. Some were small with only a few circular windows. Others were multiple stories high with dozens of beautiful rose-colored stained glass windows and several chimneys sporadically shooting out steam. Doug gasped at his first close-up look at a Martian. He wasn't sure why he was so surprised at their appearance. Maybe because for so long he thought there was no life on Mars, and now that he was here, seeing living, breathing, intelligent beings, it made his heart race. The Martians were a tall, pale people, at least eight feet from the tip of their toes to the top of their bright orange hair. Despite the busy streets, they spoke softly to one another, making their combined chatter a constant hush. Surely the only way they could hear clearly was due to their long, droopy ears that sagged below their chins. All wore metallic robes that shimmered as they walked. All except for one, that is. A man in a glowing red robe stepped out to greet them. He held out his fists and shook them with excitement. Oh, I'm a wizard waves. So pleased to meet you beyond pleased, overwhelmed, overjoyed, overcome by your presence. I'm at a loss for words, said the Martian in so many words. He spoke with a frantic lisp like he was running out of time. His orange hair twirled upward as if he'd been given a swirly. Full of a nervous energy, he looked at the cadets with his brownish-red eyes and bowed to them, clapping his hands over his eyes and then revealing them to each person. "'I think this is how we say hello,' said Lydia to the others, and then mimicking the gesture back at Rizzo. Rizzo trembled with excitement. To his absolute delight, the others followed suit, covering their eyes and bowing before pulling their hands away. Rizzo went down the line, doing this to each cadet until he faced the last of them, Dallas, who sarcastically covered and opened his hands over his eyes while saying, Peekaboo! Rizzo jumped and laughed like a little child. I have so much to tell you. Hubba-dubba-dilly-do, where to start? Goro chimed in over their headsets. Sorry, mates, not everything will translate perfectly. Rizzo turned and waved for them to follow. Come, come, I'll give you a tour and then we'll talk about my life history. Oh, dubba dubba diddy, I bet you all have a wondrous story yourselves. Not of your planet, of course. I already know quite enough about that place. No, I speak of your lives, your dreams, your aspirations. Oh, I never thought I'd meet the space train cadets. Come, come, I'll show you our city first. Rizzo gasped and took a closer look at Lydia as if really seeing her for the first time. Could it be, dear me, dear me, a Martian visitor from Earth? Lydia laughed. Not quite. Believe it or not, there are a lot of us on Earth with red hair and light skin. You should see my brothers. They'd fit in just fine here, except for the quiet talk. That they couldn't do. 
Rizzo beamed. My, aren't you delightful? Such a delightress. That must be what they call you back home. Delightress? Haven't heard that one yet. Lydia laughed again. Rizzo continued down the street as they tried to keep up with his marching pace and even faster scattered brain. We should probably start with the Tylons. As you can see, much of what we make consists of these clever little triangles. He held out a small triangle-shaped piece of metal. Tylons are an intelligent matter that can be used to build anything you can dream of and serve virtually any purpose. Look closely around you and you'll see the possibilities are endless. He pointed to the hovering street buggies, some of the metal buildings, communication devices, even the metal robes the Martians were wearing consisted of thousands of small triangular parts. To understand Olympus, you must first understand our history with Tylons. The relationship goes back years, many years, generations upon generations. Dallas rolled his eyes and stepped back from the group. It was bad enough they'd been lectured to by Goro all day, and now the peekaboo guy? Nah, not gonna happen. He'd had enough. It wasn't like he'd get lost. He knew where the space train was stationed. So once the cadets and Schizo Rizzo were out of sight, Dallas turned a corner and headed into Olympus's market. Boy, was it a busy place. He walked by hovering metal Tylon stands covered in cooked alien critters and bizarre toys made of rock and rope for the Martianlings. But the most peculiar thing he found in the entire market was the fact that no one was surprised to see a big, goofy-looking Earth man walking around in a spacesuit. It was as if this was a daily occurrence. Come to think of it, nobody had stopped to ogle them when they got off the train, either. Nobody except for Rizzo. It was eerie. Dallas practically felt invisible walking through the hordes of quietly talking Martians. That is until he felt eyes on him. He could feel the gaze every time he stopped at a booth. First by the toy stand, then over by the ring of miniature fighting robots, and then at the vegetable stand. Or at least what he thought was a vegetable stand. It really looked more like a collection of hairy squids with flailing tentacles. After the third time, Dallas whirled around to see a little shaggy-haired Martian girl holding a big box with a red bow on it. She handed it to him, and before he could say a word, she hopped on a hovering Tylon trike and rode off into the crowd. Uh, thanks, Doodlehead, Dallas called after her. He looked down at the box and back up at the speeding trike. On the other side of the city, Doug, Lydia, Leo, and Rizzo stood before a massive steel wall. I do hope your friend isn't lost, said Rizzo, looking genuinely concerned, more so than the rest of the group. Lydia shook her head. Don't worry about Dallas. I'm sure he's fine. He's just been a little moody lately. Don't take it personally. Worst case scenario, he can just call for our conductor if he needs to find his way back. Please, continue. As you wish, Delitris. He turned again to face the curved wall. The well of being has held our water for thousands of years. Imagine beautiful springs and waterfalls flowing from these walls. There, there, and there. They poured down here this way and fed into those canals. That was only months ago, but now, as you can see, the holes are sealed up, and our metrics indicate that the supply is depleting despite the stop of flow. Drying up, maybe? We don't know. But without the well of being, we will be no more. The kids stared up at the massive steel sphere that was lodged between two red cliffs. It was obvious that the slits and holes along its belly had been welded or sealed up somehow. Doug finally spoke up. 
How about Leo and I head into the city to figure out a way to open it, and you and Rizzo can stay here and investigate the cause of the sealed holes? Lydia looked at him, surprised. Getting a little bossy, are we? Goro did say I was the captain. Lydia looked at him and made a snooty face. Okay, then. Aye, aye, Captain. Back at the market, Dallas was reading the card attached to his mystery gift. To Dallas, for your strength and loyalty. What? He tossed the card aside and tore open the gift. Inside was the most gorgeous thing he'd ever seen. A surfboard. A beautiful, shiny metal surfboard. Filled with new life, he ran his hand across the board and knew just what to do. Over the domed houses, he could see a sand dune, and he was going to shred it. At the other end of the market, Doug and Leo were looking for some way to open the well. Is it just me, or was Lydia getting a little testy back there? Asked Doug. Leo shrugged. I wasn't trying to be bossy or anything. It's just, you heard Goro, I'm the captain, so that means I've got to make some decisions. Leo nodded sympathetically. Anyway, Doug looked over the market stands. Let's see what we could do about those holds. Maybe we could pry them open or something? Leo scratched his curly blonde hair and thought. His face lit up as an idea came to him. Without making a sound, he gestured an explosion with his hands. Doug thought it was impressive to do such a thing and not make an explosion sound effect. A bomb? Doug confirmed. Leo nodded. Yeah, yeah, I like it. We're gonna need to ask around for the stuff we'll need to build it, so let's start over there. Like hopeless children lost in Hong Kong, they bounced between vendors, looking for anything and everything that could be combined in such a way that would create an explosion big enough to blow a hole in the well. The first vendor they came to started to help them, but as soon as he realized what type of ingredients they were looking for, his triangle eyeglasses turned dark and he went silent. They tried to speak to a woman in the next booth over about the sharpest rocks in the city, but her metal earrings curled up and plugged her ears. Finally, they tried to stop a buggy driver to ask him what the well was made of, but his metal vehicle zipped him off before he could answer the question. Something was up, but Doug and Leo didn't have time to figure out what it was. That wasn't why they were here. They were here to blast that well to smithereens, or just the sealed parts. Finally, they somehow managed to scrounge up the parts they needed to build an explosive device. Doug's hands worked in a frenzy, using the detailed diagrams and plans floating around in his head to carefully but quickly assemble what he hoped would be a bomb. Not that he'd ever built one before. Leo watched with wide eyes, and Doug could tell by his face that he was shocked Doug knew how to do such a thing. The truth was, he didn't really know what he was doing, but his mind seemed to think it did. With a few more twists and turns, the device was finished. Together, they looked it over. As Doug turned it in his hands, the wiry ball steamed and then fell apart. It died like a starving animal in his fingers. What was left of it laid in a pile of circuits and wires. Doug wiped his forehead, only to realize he couldn't do so with a space helmet on. Honestly, he said, I'm kind of relieved that didn't work. Judging by Leo's smiling nod, he felt the same way. So they sat next to their failed attempt and looked around for other ideas. Doug thought about how hard it was trying to reach out to the busy Martians, just getting them to acknowledge they were there, let alone getting them to help. This mission was to save them, after all. You'd think they'd help at least a little, like a glass of cold lemonade or something. He thought of the man's triangle eyeglasses, the woman's triangle earrings, and the little triangle shapes that made up the buggy that sped off. And then finally it hit him, 
he knew exactly what was wrong with the well. Dallas stood at the top of a massive sand dune and took a deep breath as if inhaling an ocean breeze. He positioned the board at the edge of the slope and imagined that the sand beneath him was wet from the frothy tide. This is going to be the sickest, gnarliest ride of my life. He kissed his hand and pointed out toward the city. This one's for you, alien secret Santa. And with that, he dropped down the dune. Back at the well, Lydia and Rizzo were carefully inspecting a long seam up the wall. Rizzo had been talking non-stop since the others left, and Lydia had resulted to tuning him out, only occasionally grunting and saying, Mm-hmm, any time a question was asked. Lydia ran her hand over the seal. This looks like it was sealed recently. Who here would do such a thing? And how did they do it without being seen? One of the biggest mysteries of my time, Delitris. Truly a puzzle. Rizzo, Lydia stepped back and finally looked at him. I've been wondering, how did you get a hold of Doug's purple soda rocket? I beg your pardon? That is a correct expression, no? Beg pardon? I, I don't really understand its meaning, since I don't feel it appropriate to grovel for forgiveness. And that is the closest translation I can make to your expression. Rizzo, just answer the question. I don't know what you asked, Delitris. What is a soda bottle rocket? I thought the vessel you traveled here in was the great space train. Lydia grew frustrated. It is. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the message you sent us to come help you. You put it in Doug's purple rocket and sent it to us. Rizzo looked amused by this. A message in a bottle? Oh, dear, 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 dear. We may not be the most advanced civilization in the galaxy, but to suggest I'd communicate an important message via written word in a capsule is nothing short of ludicrous. So you didn't send for help? Oh, I sent out a distress signal months ago through holographic recording, but got no response from our neighboring planets. I, of course, didn't expect anything from the Earthmen. Your leaders are too busy trying to keep our existence secret, so why would they waste their time and resources to come to our aid? I never dreamed the space train would come to our rescue, seeing as it's been years since the cadets have performed a mission. Excellent time to climb back aboard, I dare say. Lydia didn't know how to respond. She opened her mouth to say something, but she was interrupted by approaching voices. They turned to see Doug and Leo running up, Doug shouting for Lydia. In the distance, Dallas cut down the mountain, shredding the sandy waves, cheering and laughing as he turned and slid across the sand. With impressive agility, he carved between rocks, tail slid across the edges of buildings, and occasionally jumped the domed huts. After the last hut, the sand curved up until it reached a cliff. Doug howled, Bodacious! Bodacious! He reached the cliff and flew off of it. Below, Rizzo and the cadets looked up to see a figure flying over them, holding itself onto a board and laughing maniacally. To their horror, it was heading straight for the well. Dallas, look out! Lydia shouted, but it was too late. Dallas hit the well hard, his board puncturing deep into its belly. Dallas slammed into the wall and fell back onto his board. In a dazed tumble, he rolled off of it but managed to grab onto the tail. His shouts of glee turned to panic as he held on for dear life. Below him, a hundred foot dropped to jagged orange rocks. Dallas, don't move! We're coming for you! shouted Doug. He ran for the ladder along the wall and started up it. Dangling up above, Dallas caught his breath and tried to calm himself. Slowly, he closed his eyes and imagined himself back on the waves. He remembered the biggest one he'd ever surfed. 
a colossal of a swell that built up before creating the tallest curl he'd ever seen. It was terrifying, watching the mass of liquid shadow over you like a collapsing building. He thought about ducking under it, but it was too late. It was just him and the beast. There was nothing left to do but paddle, so he kicked and pulled on his board as hard as he could as the massive wave curled over him. Then, in an adrenaline-filled instant, he popped up and shot the tube, riding through what felt like an aquarium waterslide until he shot out the other end. Dallas opened his eyes, filled with the same adrenaline he'd felt the day on the beast. With all of his strength, he yanked at his board and kicked off the wall. He yanked and kicked again and again until the board moved. Doug was halfway up the ladder. Dallas, what are you doing? He yelled. What is he doing? He shouted back down to the others. Leo watched Dallas and smiled. With one last kick, the board was free. Water gushed out of the well's gaping wound and blasted Dallas and his board off the wall. Dallas immediately turned himself onto the board and stood up, riding the gushing wave as it came crashing down. Yeah, baby! He hollered, gaining his balance. With an unbelievable force, the wave pounded against the sand and rushed into the canals. Dallas landed with the water and rode the splashing curves into the canal through the city. This was his moment of glory. All thoughts of the massive waves he'd conquered paled in comparison. It really was the ride of a lifetime. And to prove it, the Martians cheered and roared as he came shredding down the canal with their precious water. They raised their hands at the mist that sprayed over them. Beneath the gushing well, Rizzo and the kids cheered. He hugged them in their soaked spacesuits and kissed their helmets with tears of joy, saying thank you at least a thousand times. Once the water had calmed, Doug stepped away from the group and inspected the newly opened seal. He pulled a piece of jagged edge from the torn seam and held it up. A small metal triangle shone in his gloved hand. The cadet's departure was a far cry from their arrival. This time, thousands of Martians, young and old, surrounded them and cheered. They even presented them with gifts before they boarded the train, as was customary for Martians who felt blessed by their guests. Leo was given a stunning red crystal that was long enough to be a walking stick. Lydia was granted official citizenship to the Republic of Mars with all of the benefits that came with it, compliments of Rizzo. Doug was given a beautiful brass spyglass. And at last, Rizzo handed Doug Dallas's gift, a piece of clothing that looked like a red bandana a gift hardly fit for one who'd single-handedly saved their species. Doug looked at the bandana and then back at Goro, who was waiting for them in the open train car doors. Do we know where to find him? he asked. Goro nodded. Don't worry, he's still headed down the canal. We'll pick him up downstream. When all the gifts had been graciously accepted, the cadets said their goodbyes and climbed on board. Something didn't feel right about their cheers about their heroic farewell and the gifts. The sounds of their praises brought a lump to Doug's throat. We can't leave, he said under his breath. Goro turned to him. What's that, Captain? They're not safe. The Martians, they're not safe with them. Them? said Lydia, taking off her helmet. The well blockage wasn't an accident. It was sealed on purpose. Lydia shook her head. I knew it. I knew someone sealed it up. But who? Doug pulled the little metal triangle from his pocket and held it up. By these. Goro's digital eyes grew enormous. Tylons! We need to get to Dallas now! 
The group ran up to the cockpit and strapped in. Doug had never seen Gora work the controls so quickly. His robot arms flew from one lever to the next, and before he knew it, they were blasting off over the city. Over the horizon, at the end of the city's main channel, Dallas was slowly coming to a stop on his board, basking in his ride of epic proportions. But something odd happened when he went to step off the board. His boots wouldn't budge. They were stuck like he'd stepped in quicksand. Confused, he looked closer at his feet and saw that they were engulfed in little metal triangles. And now that he was taking a closer look, he could see hundreds of little triangles making up the board. Oh boy, he said, pulling up hard on his feet but with no success. Without warning, the board zipped off over the dunes, propelled by little jets that had dispensed out the back. Goro! Goro! he yelled into the headset. But it was no use. Only the sound of jumbled static filled his helmet. Trying to think of a way to break loose, he feverishly reached into his pockets. Maybe there'd be something sharp he could use to pry the tylons off. But instead, all he could find was his lousy little can of candy float spray. He held the little bottle up to his petrified face. Dallas? Dallas, can you hear us? We're coming for you! Lydia shouted into the cockpit speaker system. There, too, only static sounded through. She slammed the controls. Why isn't it working? I had the same problem while you were on your mission said Goro. The radio feeds have been distorted and all my efforts to clear it up have been in vain. I'm afraid it's a targeted attack. As the train reached the end of the canal, there was no sign of Dallas. We're too late, cried Lydia. Wait, what's that? Doug pointed to a faint trail in the sand. There, follow those marks. They sped over the dunes until the trail ended. Lydia looked over the horizon. Where'd it go? Leo typed frantically into the cockpit's dashboard, scanning the outer cameras for any signs of Dallas. He stopped on one of the video feeds and tapped the screen loudly for everyone to look. He zoomed in and pointed. There, heading up into the orange clouds, was a trail of mist. A spray of some sort. No way, said Doug in disbelief. Goro looked out of the cockpit window at the real thing. Could it be float spray? They cruised along the spray's path up into the sky through the clouds. When the fog had cleared from the window and screens, their jaws dropped. A massive presence shadowed their ship. Goro squeezed the controls. Sweet Mother Earth. The cadets stared out in a stupor. Filling the cockpit window and most of the sky above was an enormous ship, and leading up to it, was a thin trail of edible float spray. You've been listening to Space Train production of the Purple Rocket Podcast. Join us next time on another adventure with the Space Train Cadets. This is Greg Webb, and thank you for listening.